Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer, the show about people who work in government or politics at any level and what they take from the experience. I'm your host, Jim Papa, a partner at Global Strategy Group and a former staffer myself. My guest today is Cecilia Munoz, a national leader in public policy who has been an advocate, a thought leader, an author, and a senior staffer in the West Wing. I got to know Cecilia when she served in the Obama White House, first as head of the Office of Intergovernmental Affairs, and then as the first Latino ever to hold the position of director of the Domestic Policy Council. Prior to her eight years in the White House, Cecilia was one of the country's leading experts and advocates for immigrants and immigration reform. She served as the senior vice president of research, advocacy, and legislation at what was then known as the National Council of La Raza and is today known as Unidos U.S., which is the largest Latino civil rights organization in the nation. Before that, Cecilia got her start in advocacy with Catholic Charities. Today, Cecilia is a senior advisor at New America, which she joined in 2017, to lead local initiatives and build a team on public interest technology. She has contributed to several books, such as Immigration Matters, West Wingers, What My Mother Gave Me, and This I Believe. She has also authored a book. It's called More Than Ready, Be Strong and Be You and Other Lessons for Women of Color on the Rise. I've read that last one and highly recommend it. And as you'll hear, I ask Cecilia a few questions about it. Cecilia is the real deal. She has committed her life to improving the lives of others, and her efforts have earned her many honors, among them the prestigious MacArthur Foundation Fellowship. Cecilia and I recorded this episode on Friday, June 3rd. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Cecilia Munoz, welcome to Staffer. Thank you so much for having me. I am really excited to dive into the conversation today because you have been someone who not only did I get to work with, but I really admired during uh, our overlapping time in the White House. And as you may know, with these interviews, I like to dive in at the very beginning. Um, So let me start uh, by asking you where you grew up and what family life was like. I am the daughter of immigrants from Bolivia um, who moved to Detroit in the 1950s, right, as the auto industry was taking off. Um, and so I am a Detroiter. I was born in the city and I grew up in the in the Detroit suburbs. So I'm a Midwestern Latina, which I like to point out because that's a thing. Like people forget that that there's a Midwestern community and there is and I'm part of it. When you um, I read your book, which I loved uh, more than ready. Be strong and be you and other lessons for women of color on the rise. And you describe the fact that from an early age, really, even when you went off to school, you knew that you your life's work was going to be in service of others. Where did that come from? Honestly, I'm not sure. <laughs> um, it's it, it it might just be in my DNA. My um, my I have a family history that involves some service, but I just remember knowing that that's that that's what I wanted to do. At first, I thought that meant. As, you know, as a little kid, the people who were helping others tended to be doctors. So I thought I was going to be a doctor. And when I was old enough to know myself a little better, realized that that was not what I was going to be. But yeah, I did always have that sense. And it's possible that I got it, um, uh, believe it or not, from my church. Um, I grew up, you know, in a kind of traditional Roman Catholic family. Um, and I, I actually think I may have absorbed the kind of social teachings of the Catholic church at an early age. And they've been a pretty foundational force for me. Yeah. A, 
a foundational force personally and professionally because you went to school at the University of Michigan and then you got your master's at Berkeley. But perhaps your first or at least one of your early professional experiences was with Catholic Charities. And it was there that you intersected with uh, immigration as a policy matter and as a as a way of serving people. So can you talk about how you got there and, and what yeah. your work entailed? Yeah. So it's, in fact, it was my first job out of grad school. So I, as you said, I went to graduate school in California and um, was fortunate enough to have a scholarship, which was amazing. So I uh, didn't have to wash dishes the way I did in undergrad. And so I volunteered at a little um, Catholic church run very tiny legal clinic for immigrants um, uh, right by the Fruitvale Art Station uh, in Oakland, California. And so I was just like a paralegal helping the lawyers do immigration cases. And I had been drawn to that because I come from this big immigrant family. It's sort of immigration, this part of my family story like it is for so many Americans. And so I knew a little bit, a little, very little about immigration practice But I was there in the very vital period when a big immigration law was going through Congress. As it was, the bill was called the Simpson-Mazzoli bill. It became the Immigration Reform and Control Act. It passed in 1986. And under that bill is the last time we legalized people, undocumented people. About three million people went through the legalization process under under that bill. And that was all happening while I was in graduate school. And then I moved back to the Midwest. I landed in Chicago because of some very nice people who mentored me. I landed a job um, at Catholic Charities, actually helping organize parishes and developing their community services. So that I landed that job in September. In November, this new law, this new immigration law passes. And the Archdiocese of Chicago, which is enormous, um, and uh, and and very immigrant, and of which at the time Latinos were half of the parishioners in the archdiocese. The archdiocese makes a big announcement: we're going to help legalize people, and they give the assignment to Catholic Charities where I work, and they give it to the priest who is two layers above me. He's my boss's boss. He's running a big social service division of Catholic Charities, and the cardinal really wants him to succeed, and he knows nothing about any of this. Right, because he he's like a therapist himself. He's running social services. Like, what does he know about immigration? And there's this kid on his team, namely me, just asking questions, just like the kinds of questions you would ask if you were interested. Because I just really wanted to know, like, how are you thinking about the legalization process? How you're going to work with the parishes? I don't even remember what I was asking, but I was possibly the only person in his life asking questions about this. So he actually called me into his office. Actually, I came into work and my boss, who was Sister Rosemary, called me into her office to say, Father Ruby needs to talk to you. And I'm thinking, what did I do? I'm in trouble. <laughs> All to the principal's office. And he actually said to me, uh, the Lord has sent me a dream and I need you to run the legalization program for us, which is completely bonkers. Um, <laughs> and, um, a so good dream the, for you. At the, yeah. <laughs> it's exciting. I, I, 24, I ended up running the legalization program for Catholic Charities of Chicago, which was the largest program in the city, Um, and which was an amazing experience. Um, 
but it's completely bonkers the way that happened. And I learned a lot about my church that was great. And I learned a lot about my church that was troubling. Um, but we did a, you know, we did a very good thing. You know, you, you, uh, wrote about the fact that this opportunity while amazing was also so big and so daunting that in retrospect, you even thought like, wow, I can't believe I did that. Um, when, you know, when fortunate young people, when they are talented and in the right place, right time, like sometimes they get these opportunities. What is your advice for them when they may think they're just getting, you know, a new job by the fingertips? You know, so much of the country, and I'm sure you know this because you you have been a staffer and you work with staffers, and look, the Congress of the United States is run by people in their 20s, a yeah. lot of them, right? Uh, and you and I worked together in the Obama administration, the federal government, a lot of the really good things that happen that affect people's lives in positive ways, that work is being done by young people. Um, and so on the one hand, I've had the experience, like many young people who work in, in, in policy and in government and in politics, of having like way more responsibility than perhaps I should have had given my depth of experience. Uh, but I, like so many young people in Washington, rose to the occasion, found sources of support, amassed the knowledge that I didn't have, found people who had the knowledge that I didn't have. I had people who were twice my age working for me. Um, and so the, being in over your head, is a, it's a good thing to know that you're in over your head. It's a good thing to acknowledge that there's stuff that you don't know and to go about finding it out or, you know, build in partnerships with people who do know it. Um, but also don't underestimate your, your, what you can do and what others before you have done, right? The, the social movements that have changed the country, the government which runs the country, the Congress which makes decisions on behalf of the country, a lot of it is run by young people who are eager and thoughtful and have energy and drive. Well, something that um, you discovered about yourself through this process and your next job, uh, which was with the National Council of La Raza, which is today known as Unidos U.S., you eventually became the, the Senior Vice President of Research, Advocacy, and Legislation. But you, you realized about yourself that you are a natural-born advocate. And as you progressed to these positions, you also realized that there were some skills, you know, some skills you came to naturally, but some you had to develop, especially as you encountered other people within your organization and some outside your organization, which were sometimes barriers to giving you standing. Yeah. Right. Um, As a representative of the organization, you had to learn to do some things from everything from how you presented yourself to yeah. a mindset. So can you talk about some of those um, things that you adopted um, yeah. as you kind of went up the ladder in, in leadership positions? Yeah, what a great question. I mean, the first thing I'll say is that I discovered that I was a natural born advocate because I also discovered that I sucked at doing direct service, which is what I thought was what I went to Catholic charities to do. And I like to tell that story to young audiences because sometimes you find your path by not finding your path, right? By taking on a thing and discovering, oh, this isn't my thing. I thought it was going to be what I was good at. And it's not. And I had that experience and it's what made me realize, oh, okay, not direct service. That's what I thought I was going to do. But I also noticed, wow, the thing that I'm thinking about when I wake up is the advocacy needs of the clients that we're seeing. And that's how I discovered I was good at it. 
and, and cared about it. Um, and, and then I land at the National Council of La Raza, as you say. And I have a lot of community experience. I have a lot of experience implementing a new immigration law. I understand how it works in the real world with actual people. But I'm in a policy environment with people who are working on legislation, going to markups of bills, writing testimony, and delivering testimony. I had not done most of that. But I knew stuff that they didn't know because they hadn't actually done the work in an actual community of the folks who were mm. affected by it. And I had. But I, and this is a theme through my whole career. I walked into those meetings and most of those meetings were, those meetings were nearly all male. Um, it feeling like, Oh, this is like a, this is like a club that has knowledge that I, and I'm not a member and I don't have it. And I felt that way starting my job in Washington. I felt that way when I got to the white house 20 years later. Um, it's, it's a frequent theme and this happens. It's frequent. I think for young people starting out, I think it's a common theme for women. And I know it's common for people of color and women of color, right? That when you're breaking into a field where there aren't a lot of people like you, it's pretty easy to feel like the club's got knowledge and I don't have it and I'm not sure I have access to it. And I compensated for that by doing a, a couple things. One is just is like really doing my homework. Um, and this is a, actually a piece of advice I give in my book. Um, to people who have that feeling, that sort of imposter syndrome of like, what the heck am I doing in this, in this meeting with these, you know, other players yep. is I make sure I feel prepared for that meeting. I make sure that I've, you know, studied up and read the things that I need to read and, you know, practice my lines if necessary. So that's one tactic. The other tactic has to do with my being, I'm, I'm short, right? I'm a Latina. I'm five, two. I don't take up a lot of physical space in the room. People tend to under like all of those factors lead people to underestimate a person. Um, so that's part of the reason I do my homework. But I also, there's a chapter in my book called Sharp Elbows and Other Tools. I had to actually physically break my way into the circle of guys. And they were all guys and they were all tall. Who literally at the end of a markup, we were the group working on the bill. They stood up, they formed a circle and I wasn't in it. Yep. And I went back to my boss uh, who's a wonderful man named Charles Kamasaki, who is also not tall, and said, this thing happened. And like, how am I supposed to, like they were plotting the next layer of strategy and I w physically was not in the circle in order to be part of the conversation. And he said, yeah, use your elbow and just say, guys, can you let me in here? Which is something I never would have thought to do on my own. I'm far too polite for that. Yep. And I only had to do it once. Um, right. But I, and, you know, that, that is such an important part. Like, I think the line that I remember from your book is, hey, fellas, can you make room for a colleague? Yeah. And it, it like it changes the dynamic. And I know if I, you know, heard that, I think to myself, oh, I, I'm embarrassed. Yeah. You know, and I'll and I don't want to make that mistake again. So you only have to do it once. Exactly. Right. And then yeah. you and then you're at that next plateau. And it's that's part of the lesson there is. Don't assume bad faith. Like they didn't mm. stand up and say, oh, we're going to form a circle and leave her out. They just did what they always do. And so you're right. When I said, hey, can you make room for a colleague here? They were embarrassed and they'd made room and it never happened again. But if I had assumed, oh, these are terrible people and they don't want me in the circle, I might have kept myself out. 
for a long time. Mm-hmm. So the, the assuming good faith is a really, really important lesson. Now, sometimes good faith is not present and you have to contend yeah. with that. But most of the time it is. Yeah. Um, okay. So you have a really distinguished period of time at uh, La Raza, now Unidas U.S., and you make your way to the White House uh, to you are asked to run the uh, the department, the, the component within the White House called IGA, Intergovernmental Affairs. Yeah. Was that your first job in government? Was was your first job in government in the West Wing? <laughs> You're pretty much describing my entire career. Catholic Charities, <laughs> the National Council of La Raza. And the White House. And then That's unbelievable. Then so how did that happen? How did you how did you get into the West Wing? Where you you served for eight years. You were later the first um, uh, Latino to be the to run the Domestic Policy Council. But how did you how did that transition happen? It's another crazy story. So I was not angling um, to work in the White House. Um, in fact, I had I had avoided doing it previously. I'd been asked to interview for jobs in, in the Clinton years. And I had little kids and didn't think I could manage it. And so I sort of had a theory of the case that you need good people in government and you need good people outside of government. And it's all a continuum. And my job is on the outside. But I had worked for, I volunteered for President Obama's campaign. Um, I was a big fan. But I volunteered, I, you know, I say that with real humility because You and I both worked with people who like dropped everything and lived in their cars in Iowa. And I didn't do that. I had kids. So I gave policy advice. I gave Latino outreach advice um, to the campaign. So I, you know, I kind of did my part to help out, but that was it. And I was not angling for a job. Like, you know, after he got elected, when like all of everybody is looking for administration jobs, I was like, no, I've got my life figured out. I'm at a job that I love. I've got kids at home. So God bless the people who are going to go in. And I, and John Podesta called me. He he was co-chair of the transition in early November and said, you, they want to interview you. Um, and you should, you should do it. And I said to him, my mother had recently passed away. I had two daughters at home. I said to him, Oh, John, I don't, I don't know. I don't think I could do that. Um, he said, just go in and talk to him. He said, and he said to me two things, two pieces of advice, which proved to be a hundred percent wise and wonderful. One is he said, you know, when I was chief of staff, he was chief of staff in the Clinton administration. He had, he had high schoolers at home. He said, you can still see your family, but you have to accept that that's, that's it. Like you get one thing in those jobs, you get one thing besides work. And if that thing is your family, then you've chosen and you're jettisoning everything else. You're not going to follow the sport. You're not going to sing in your choir. You're not going to see your friends, but, but, but you can do it. It is possible. Um, And so that was his advice, like pick one thing and jettison everything else. And um, so I went in for the interview and I thought, well, I don't actually want this job. So this is a low stakes interview, but I really want to know what Rahm Emanuel, the incoming chief of staff, has to say about immigration because we want to pass a bill and his reputation on that issue is a little shaky. So I thought, this is a great opportunity. I can gather intel. I don't want the job. So it's a low risk interview. So I was told. Oh, I love it. But you went in even as an advocate, right? Still wearing your advocate hat. 100%. 100%. And I was honest with them. 
I have family considerations. I'm not sure I can do this at this time, but I'm honored that you would talk to me. And now let's talk about immigration. This was with Rahm Emanuel, who became the chief of staff, and Jim Messina, who became deputy chief of staff, who I'd, I'd never met Jim before. And I leave the interview with my intel. Rahm was very impressive, by the way, on immigration. And Messina calls me and says, I have bad news for you. We really want you to take this job. <laughs> and I consulted with my family. And he said, but you would have to recuse yourself from immigration. And I mm-hmm. talked to my family and I think, well, this doesn't make any sense at all. I'm not the right. Like, why would I recuse myself from the thing, which is my life's work? And I got these teenage daughters. And so I called him back and said, I'm very honored. And if you like, if the time comes and you want to talk to me about a second, his second term, my kids will be grown, but no, thank you. And he says, I don't think it's going to end here. And I think, oh yeah, please. Everybody in town wants these jobs. You don't need me. You know, of course it's going to end here. And the next day I am driving my daughter to her allergy shots and my sister is visiting from out of town and she's in the car with me and my cell phone rings and it's a 312 number. And I think, "Uh uh-oh, and it's Rom. And he says, you're not going to have to recuse yourself. I promise you, you will be in every meeting that has to do with immigration. And I promise you that we will make this a family-friendly White House. And then he says, can you hang on for a minute? And the next words I hear are, this is Barack Obama. And I'm not taking no. Wow. Um, so right. that's how I got to the White House. At that point, I, I couldn't. How could you say no? Right. I tried to say no. As you probably now know, having worked for him, we now know. He is shameless about recruiting people. <laughs> Quite. <laughs> Quite. Yes. Um, you know, the other. Uh, that's an incredible story. Um it was, you know, later it becomes public, right? They put out a press release. And when the news is, you know, digested by, by the world, you get an email from a friend and colleague who's a fellow advocate. And that person wrote, congratulations, great news. Now we will criticize you. <laughs> so um, did it make, you know, you went from advocate to, you know, Inside the White House um, and a real stakeholder driver of policy choices, which are excruciatingly hard. Um, So how did you make that transition? I was worried about it because I wasn't sure the skill set would transfer. And it turns out it does. I took comfort from the fact that the president knew who I was and he wanted me anyway. Right. So I, I yeah. took a lot of comfort from the fact that I was working for a president who had been an organizer, that he understood who I was, had been the target of my own advocacy, and that that's actually what he why he wanted me there. And so I lean into that a lot. Like what and when it got hard, and of course it gets hard, um, I I leaned into two things. One is that is that he asked me here for a reason, and and that is to assert what I know. And um, and, and that I trusted his judgment. Um, and he never let me down ever in eight years with respect to my trust in his judgment. The other thing I knew was that people would criticize me and that some of my relationships in my own community would break. And I was right about that. Mm. Um, uh, because I knew I was going to own the immigration issue and I was going to have, therefore have to own immigration enforcement where the choices available to the government are all terrible. Um, and that I was going to 
do my best, but it wasn't going to be enough. And some people would never be able to forgive me for that. And that's turned out to be true as well. And so I've done a lot of thinking about that. And I, I write about that in my book too, that it matters to have a North Star, to know why you're there, what you're trying to accomplish, and to hang on to your integrity in doing it. And um, all you can do, all you can give is 100%. Um, but you have to be true to what you know. And if there's a time when you feel like you're, you can't do that, then it's time to go. And I mm-hmm. never arrived at that time. Although there's people, I'm sure, who feel differently about that. You know, uh, President Obama has said many times, so privately and publicly, if you give me the choice between a little bit of progress, right, and and no progress, I'm going to take a little bit every time. Yeah. Um, that is what sort of contributes often to these excruciating choices. Yeah. Because, right, the advocates want more. And they, and, and they understandably often feel like only a small amount of progress or a compromise that leads to that small advancement takes the wind and the energy out of getting the, the, the bigger change. Having been now inside these rooms where these choices have to be made, is there anything that you would take, you know, that you take from the experts back out to the advocacy advocacy community and how how does that inform, you know, your work? I find that, I frequently say to groups of younger advocates, particularly when they're working on legislation, because they don't, the experience of passing legislation is so rare now because so little of it passes anymore. Yep. That, right, there's always that moment when you are presented with whatever the bill is going to be, right, at the stage where it's introduced, which, and you know it's going to change, at the stage when it goes through committee and the floor and all of the, all of the steps, it changes and you're left with, Am I for this or against this in its current form? Um, and then there's that stage at the end, right, where you have been trying and trying and trying to get everything you want. And you're you're down to the, it's either this or nothing, right? And, you, and then you have to make a judgment call. That's the point at which I have to say to people, in all of my years of doing this, and I'm, it's, that's now more than 30, I have never seen a piece of legislation that's perfect that accomplishes everything we need. Never, not once. It doesn't happen. And so you have to put yourself at at some level in the presence of the people who you've been doing this for and make a determination, will life be better for them or not? That's the determination. Not, is this everything everybody needs? Because that is not available. And as long as you know that you've done all the pushing all the way along to get as far as you can, then President Obama is 100% right. You, if, if, it's, if the result is better for people, you take it. Yeah. Um, because, well, you know, uh, because what should have been is not available ever. Right. We're watching this play out today with gun safety legislation, right? Like we already know that if a compromise can come together that gets 60 votes in the Senate, it will be a version of gun safety legislation that is not what the president wants, you know, and what he laid out in his speech. And it is not what the House is going to pass. Right. It will, or, or even what Senate Democrats, want. it'll be some smaller version of that. Yep. If they can get even that progress, but not, you know, what you and I would probably say is, needed. Right. And that's, I, 
it's important that we make progress. It's important yes. that we remember that we can. It's important that we exercise those muscles because that brick in the road will have been laid. And so now you can work on the next one. Um, our, our, this has always been a dynamic, but in some ways it's more true now because people have such little, so little experience now passing anything. You're right. That, that's how it goes. The Civil Rights Act that we celebrate that passed in 1964 was not perfect, not even close. That's right. And smaller and smaller, even less perfect bills were passed in the lead up to it. Right. Compromises, you know, small, weaker compromises were passed before that, to your point about building the muscle. Yeah. Yeah. And we as advocates have some muscles to build. Like it's the easiest thing in the world is to name the thing that you want and yell at people for not giving it to you. The hardest thing in the world is to make the judgment calls, to to make the in increments of progress that actually become progress and affect people's lives. No, we have accomplished no great thing except through those kinds of steps. Yeah. So, so you are one of the people uh, who, in two different roles within the White House, if there was a small group of people who was convened around the president on a very you know, complex, difficult choices, you know, they almost all are when they get to the president. Yeah. Um, how did you, you know, every member, every principal is unique. Talk about how you prepared for those meetings mm -hmm. to give the president what he would need yeah. to make a decision. That is the essence of the domestic policy advisor's job, right? And and I make the case in my book that my 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 superpower, to the extent I had one, in that job was not my policy expertise. It was my empathy. My, I, mm. I, there's a chapter in my book called on kindness and or in defense of kindness. And I make the case that it's a leadership quality and it's an essential one. And what I mean by that relates exactly to your question about like, what does the president need in that moment when you have members of his team, members of his cabinet disagreeing on a thing, on a hard thing, and he's got to make a decision and somebody's perspective is going to win and somebody else's is going to lose and people's lives are going to be affected. The essence of the job is to understand what everybody needs out of that conversation, right? So let's assume I, t I like to use the Secretary of Labor and Secretary of Commerce as an example, right? You would expect they would disagree on stuff. Um, so what do they need to be sure that they were treated fairly and to be sure that the president got understood their perspective and have the, the, the stats, the data that supported their perspective. Like, what do they need? Because in the end, one of them is going to win, one of them is going to lose, but they both have to execute on that decision. And it'll be easier for them if they fe felt like they got a fair hearing. That's one question. The other question is, what does he need? And part of the answer is he does not need all of the info that everybody wants to give him because it's too much and he doesn't have time. Like, what what is enough so that he understands, has the data that he needs, appreciates everybody's perspective, and then you stop so that he can have the space to make the decision. And usually you have to do that with one memo in one hour of his time, right? Wow. So the, the editing out stuff from the memo is an essential skill. And I think this is for people who work in policy and politics, the, the, the superpower really is brevity. <laughs> Right, mm. you're a policy yes. expert. You frequently want to show, want, want to make sure everybody knows what you know, and and lots of people want to show off what they know. 
that is not so helpful. What is helpful is to get it down onto a page, right? If you're the president of the United States, you go home at night with 40 memos on different topics. And if they are all 20 pages long, you're not going to be able to do your work. So the, the essence is understanding what people need so that they can participate in their decision-making and feel fairly treated and making sure the principal has what he or she needs to make the decision without drowning them and without, while resisting the impulse to show off what you know or or to help them show off what they know. You know, I, as part of these interviews, I, I almost always ask people what makes a good staffer and those two qualities haven't yet been identified uh, so crisply and so clearly. And they are, essential. Um, so thank you for that. It actually reminds me, Mona Sutphen was saying um, uh, when she worked for Anthony Lake or early in her career, when he was a mentor of hers, he would ask for three page memos. And, and if somebody ever submitted a memo that was longer than three pages, he just tore off pages four through X. And at the bottom wrote, your memo ended abruptly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It is the essential skill of a staffer. It's the hardest because it's actually, it forces the the staffer to say, okay, no, what's important to edit down, boil it down to your point. What do people need? What what is the information and the perspective that you have to bring to bear? Because if if you allow yourself to keep on writing, you will lack clarity and judgment that your principal is requiring you uh, to bring to the table. A hundred percent, right? There's a Mark Twain quote. I think it's Mark Twain that I would have written you a shorter letter, but I didn't have time. (laughs) Right. Yes. Hard work to distill, but that is the essential skill set. Yes. Well, okay. So let me ask the flip side of that question. You have been the recipient of a lot of staff work as well. What is something that staffers do that makes you crazy? Is there a pet peeve that you have? Long wordy PowerPoints, for example, or right, or the the, the show offy deck. Um, man, I, I edited a lot of memos and PowerPoint, right? Slides yeah. taken to meetings. Um, and and the instinct that a staffer has, and I understand it, right? Is you 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 know so much stuff and you really want to convey it, but nobody can make sense of a really crowded page of information. Right. So uh, a chart which makes a point visually that's like really clear that you can understand in a second is so much more useful than a page of text. Um, that's right. So so I learned to ask for and, and I think people who worked for me learned you can't give her everything um, in the same way that we couldn't give the president every every inch of detail. There just there isn't time for it. But that. A visual depiction um, is can be gold because it can really help understand a, a concept or a data point um, without it having to be explained in words. Um, and then I learned as a as a principal, and it was hard to switch from staffer to principal. I'm a pretty good staffer, and I was at first an uncomfortable principal. I had to get comfortable with with carrying mm. the weight of my team and and um, and letting them staff me. Right. Um, but I've learned that that's, I learned that to honor their work, I needed to let them do it and to let go and, and not be afraid to ask them, you know, questions that may have been dumb questions to them. Right. So 
in leading the Domestic Policy Council, I'm obviously covering a wide, wide range of policy. I know a lot about a lot of things, but nobody has that breadth of, of knowledge. And so, and I had, I had, you know, Jean Lambrew, who is a PhD in public health policy, leading the health team. Clearly, she knew stuff I didn't know. I needed to not be afraid to ask her, wait, explain that again? Like, I didn't understand that. Um, so that yeah. I could do her the honor of, if I was the only one in the meeting, do her the honor of adequately explaining what she taught me, right? Yeah. So step one is, if you've got Jean Lambrew working for you, make sure she's in the meeting too, if you can. And if you can't, then make sure you are respecting her work in a way which includes asking her questions that may have tried her patience. Right. Well, and it does, it does speak to like the, another plateau of leadership where, you know, you got there because you were phenomenal at, you know, being a staffer. And then there are just some aspects of being a staffer that you can no longer do in order to do the things that you must do and that only you as a principal can do. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And leaving some of those behind is hard. Yeah. My team had to yell at me, actually. They were, they, <laughs> I had, you know, a series of excellent chiefs of staff. And at one point they came in and said, you, you, first of all, don't send that, that email that you typically send to the person that's three tiers down. You're actually undercutting their boss when you do that. Don't do that. Mm. And, you know, you, you cannot be the one to take the notes in the meeting. We're taking the notes in the meeting. We will, we will distill the assignments for you. That's what a staffer does. Stop doing it. You're undercutting them. Yeah, that's amazing. Because, I mean, those are good examples and that they are clear. You know what I'm saying? And and I could see where that would be a challenge because we all have our habits that make us that make us successful and give us reassurance, right? That we know what we're doing and 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 to give some of those up, you know, might feel like thin us thin ice sometimes as you go to the next plateau. Yeah. Well, and it it um it can feel like it's cutting into the whole kindness and empathy thing, right? So mm. in other words, I'm not a person who who um, has a lot of bluster to me. So I don't, you know, I don't like throw my weight around in a room. So this notion that, oh no, I actually need to hold back um, and not do the the thing which will show everybody that I'm just like them and I'm humble and whatever. Actually, that is a get in the way of my being the principal that they need me to be. Right, right. Not just the chum who's a part of the team, but it rather can't be that running the team. Can't be that yeah. anymore. That doesn't yeah. mean you can't be gracious. In fact, I think of you course. should be gracious. Gracious, but you're 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 not their peer anymore, and it is a disservice to them to right. otherwise. Right. Uh, so you are one of the few people who went wire to wire yeah. uh, in the Obama administration. Eight years. Yeah. Um, I mean, what a record of accomplishment. So much of it known, much of it unknown. Yeah. So could you speak to me about your proudest moment and also your biggest disappointment? So my proudest moment has probably has to be DACA because it's so personal. Um, even though DACA is an administrative policy and is not the DREAM Act or immigration reform legislation, that speaks to my biggest disappointment, right, is that we didn't get an immigration bill through and we should have. We have the, went through the Senate. We had the votes in the House, but we couldn't get the Speaker to bring it up. Um so that's a, a crushing disappointment. But can I add one more to my proudest accomplishment list? Please, yes. 
I mean, obviously you also, we all have to say the ACA because we all contributed to it, but I actually take the greatest pride in some of the stuff that is, has not been so visible. Um, in my role, in both of my roles, leading intergovernmental affairs and leading domestic policy, I was responsible for various aspects of the relationships with Native American tribes. And we took that work deeply seriously and accomplished huge things alongside tribal leaders and, and communities. And I'm very proud of them. And they were not remarked upon by the national press. And, you know, there was no right that the national press, which is kind of following politics, like it was not considered big enough by them to be covered. But I'll tell you what, it really matters. <laughs> and yep. I learned so much because it's not an area of policymaking I had much experience with. I worked with some tremendous leaders from Native American communities. And I'm proud of that work in some ways in part because it was not so visible, but we care yeah. about it as if it were the stuff that were in the headlines that was in the headlines. Yeah. 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 Oh, the, um, that's really good and insightful um, answers for uh, all of the uh, disappointments and and proudest moments. Um, okay, I only have two more questions for you, okay. and they are recurring recurring questions okay. that I like to ask all of my guests. Um, one is called "In the Vault." Can you tell me about a time, any point in your career where you made a mistake, um, and what you learned from it? Hmm. Um, oh, embarrassing question. And my embarrassing answer is that I was scheduled to speak at an event that required my traveling halfway across the country and wrote the speech, got all ready. And the day of, I went to get on the plane and I didn't have my ID with me. <laughs> and I missed the flight and the scheduling was so tight that there was another flight, I couldn't get there. So I completely failed this group that was banking on me to speak. And I was so embarrassed that I, I only told a half truth about, because <laughs> it was my fault. Um, and I could not own up to it. Um, so I, I made up, a I blamed like the airport authorities, you know, the TSA easy to blame, which wasn't true. And one of the things I learned from that is that it is just really okay to admit that you do stupid stuff, including when it causes a catastrophe for a group that you care about. Um, and so I have learned to own up to things when I make mistakes, because it turns out we all do. We all do. That's why I asked this question, <laughs> because we all make these mistakes. Uh, I only, you know, I'm talking to people like you, the most successful, you know, and accomplished people that I know in, in government and politics. Um, and we all have these stories where we just flubbed something yeah. and we learned a lot that actually, you know, like as all good error stories should led to a, a lesson yeah. that, you know, means a lot to us. Yeah. Um, okay. Last question for you. If I could raise the money and get all the permit approvals, I would build a hall of fame to staffers on the national mall. If I was able to do that and I came to you and asked for a nomination who is the person that you would nominate for the Staffer Hall of Fame? You're going to smile when I say it because it has to be Pete Rouse, doesn't it? <laughs> it really does. Pete Rouse, who was yeah. President Obama's chief of staff in the Senate. He was Senator Daschle's chief of staff before that. He was frequently known as a 51st senator. 
we served with him in the White House. And he was the quintessential staffer in that he was a hundred percent, like his, his own self was just all in the service of his principal. Always, always, always. Um, And you could share anything with him and it was okay. And you always knew that he was going to be motivated by what was going to best serve the boss. And he chose excellent bosses. Um, And I, and he's a, he's a man of color at a, in a right he's Asian American in a Senate that was not so colorful. Um and you know I worked with him so closely on the Native American stuff because he was gonna fight for that because he understood that that's that it was right, but also because that's what his boss expected of him. Um so Pete yep. is my candidate for the whole thing. I love it. He's in. We'll we'll we will craft the bronze bust of Pete. Um Cecilia, you would be in my Hall of Fame. I, I really can't thank you enough. I, As I said, I'm such an admirer of yours. Um, I consider it an honor to have uh, been your colleague for a time. And I just want to say thank you for giving us uh, this time this morning. Thank you so much. It's just a joy to have the conversation, and I'm so glad you're doing this. I want to thank you all for listening to The Only Show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. Please follow, subscribe, and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And make sure to sign up for episode alerts at staffershow.com and check out Staffer Show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks all. Thanks all.